Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, in today's episode, we're going to detour from conspiracy and talk about a very important holy day on the Jewish calendar that's coming up on September the 26th. It's called Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Teruah, but I grew up calling it the Feast of Trumpets. Now, many people think that the Jewish feasts or the Jewish holy days are only specific to the Jews. And although it's true that God specifically commanded the Israelites to observe them, they're actually relevant for all of his children, including those of us grafted in by Christ. And today, I'm going to tell you why. But before I start, let me preface today's episode by saying that this is heavy, deep content. This is literally the meat from scripture, not milk. So you may want to grab your Bible and a notepad to take some notes. So when you hear the term feast, what immediately comes to your mind? Well, since the holidays are coming up, I bet you think of food. I mean, food is always associated with celebration, right? Well, there's seven major holy days that God commands his people in Leviticus to observe, and he refers to them as his feasts. According to Strong's Concordance, the word used for feast actually translates into the Hebrew word moed, which means appointment. In Leviticus 23, God speaks to Moses and says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Now the word convocation here translates to the Hebrew word mikra, which means dress rehearsal. So let's read it again. The appointments of the Lord, which you shall call dress rehearsals, these are my appointments. So basically, these feasts are literally appointments that God has set on his divine calendar for his people to observe and practice for one specific purpose, so that they can be in the right place at the right time on a future date when he returns. Now, it's widely believed that Christ fulfilled the three spring feasts down to the letter when he came the first time, and it's also believed that he will fulfill the fall feasts when he returns again. So to better understand prophecy, you really have to be familiar with these appointments of the Lord. So why aren't these holy days taught for Christians to observe? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to insert an audio clip here that talks about the difference in our Gregorian calendar and the Hebrew calendar, and then we're going to talk about it. Explain the difference between the Jewish year and the Greco-Roman year. Thank you, Sid. I'd be so happy to do that. Well, number one, God loves to speak through calendars and he loves for us to partner with him in timing. He does specific things at specific times. You know, the Bible says God at different times actually speaks in different ways, right? God who at sundry times and in diverse manners, it says. And so there is, there are, there's a couple of different calendars that you and I operate by. And one, of course, is the Gregorian calendar. And we recognize that in the Western world. And that is a sun calendar. And it's based upon the, it's based upon the sun. And then the other one, of course, is the Hebrew calendar. And the Hebrew calendar is a calendar that is based upon the moon. It, in fact, is a lunar calendar. And so they're pretty different. Uh, one of the differences is that on a Gregorian day, it begins at sunup. And, and on a Hebrew calendar, it begins at sundown. And so they're, they're literally that different. But they're both very important, Sid, whenever it comes to prophetic things, because 
Because we know that when God speaks through the sun, he is speaking to the nations. And when God speaks through the moon, whenever the Lord uses the moon as a prophetic marker, he likes to speak to his covenant people, and w- which is Israel, and that's also the church. And then whenever God likes to speak through, uh, through the prophetic marker of, say, the stars, that has to do with his, with his children of inheritance. That's why he told Abraham when he was talking to him about his children of inheritance, he said, I want you to look at the stars. So we know that there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and also in the stars. And it's very important for us to know what God is speaking at specific times so that we can live what I like to call an Issacharian lifestyle. And the Bible says, and let's see, where is that? It was in First Chronicles. It says that the sons of Issachar had an anointing, a prophetic anointing upon their life to where they knew the times and the seasons and they knew what Israel ought to do. It is in fact a blessing if we walk with God in his timing of things, and it is also a curse if we do not walk with God in his timing of things. The scripture says that whenever the whenever Jesus was talking about Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, you've missed your day of visitation. And I've wanted so much to put to move you into a place of blessing, but I could not because you did not recognize the times and the seasons. Um, in Deuteronomy 28, it says, it says that in the morning, if you don't walk with God in the morning, you'll say, I wish it was evening. And in the evening, you will say, I wish it was morning. So if we walk with God, we have to learn how to walk with him in his timing. And calendars can actually line us up with that. So as we heard, Christians and the Western worlds utilize the Gregorian calendar, which is a solar calendar based on the sun. It originated with Pope Gregory, who modified it from Julius Caesar's calendar, the Julian calendar, which was a Roman pagan calendar. The Hebrew calendar is more lunar-leaning, but it's really a lunar and solar calendar combination. The lunar cycle defines the months, and the solar cycle defines the years. And this means that the dates given of any major event is the exact date year over year with pinpoint precision. The feasts of today are celebrated on the exact date at the exact time as they were in the Old Testament. And this makes the Hebrew calendar precise, consistent, reliable, the calendar of the Bible and prophecy. Now, what's interesting is that we're told in the book of Daniel that the Antichrist doesn't want us paying attention to the Hebrew calendar or to know the appointed times. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 says that the Antichrist shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and try to change times and laws. The Hebrew translation of the word times in this passage is moed, the same word used for feast in Leviticus. So the Antichrist wears out the saints and tries to change the divine appointments of God. Could it be that the devil put people in positions of power throughout history to move us off of the Hebrew calendar and onto a pagan calendar so that we aren't even watching for the signs of Christ? Very likely. Now, in Judaism, there's a religious calendar and an agricultural calendar. The agricultural calendar begins with the month of Tishri, which is the month that kicks off the fall feasts, the seventh month of the year. And this year, 2022, that date is September the 26th. 
Now, this first fall feast goes by several different names, and that's because each name carries with it a different meaning. Not only do the Jews believe that the first of Tishri is the very day that the earth was created, this is also the day that they believe the Messiah will return for his church, the day that his people are hidden from wrath, and this is the exact day that was traditionally set aside throughout history for the enthronement of Jewish kings. It's a celebrated day in Israel in which they blow a hundred trumpets, garnering it the name Feast of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah. Yom meaning day, and Teruah meaning blowing, the day of blowing. However, these days, most people both recognize it and commonly refer to it as Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah. But what's not common is that this title originates from pagan Babylon. In the Torah, the months of the year that are given by God are the first month, the second month, the third month, and so on. There were never specific names given for these months. For example, the names of the months on our calendar are derived from Roman influence. March was named after Mars, the god of war. Maius and Junus, May and June, were named after goddesses. And September, October, November, and December are all named after the Roman numbers 7, 8, 9, and 10. Now, in my neck of the woods, we're way more familiar with the Spanish versions of these numbers. Siete, ocho, nueve, diez. They even sound like the months of the year. In the same way that the months that are now assigned to the Jewish calendar all come from Babylonian influence. And the pagan nature of these Babylonian months is highlighted with the fourth month called Tammuz. In the Babylonian religion, Tammuz was the god of grain who died and was resurrected every year, which was believed to bring fertility to the world. To this day, the fourth month on the Hebrew calendar is known as the month of Tammuz. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel himself is shown a vision of idolatry being performed outside the temple, including women who are, quote, weeping for Tammuz. And this was considered an abomination. So eventually, these Babylonian month names actually found their way into the later books of Scripture. In Esther chapter 3, verse 7, it says, quote, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So here we see it twice in this one scripture. It begins with the Torah name for the month, the first month, or the twelfth month, and then it translates these months into their pagan equivalent, the month of Nisan, or the month of Adar. And as the Jews become more comfortable utilizing the Babylonian month names, they also became more susceptible to other Babylonian influences. And this brings us to their celebration of Yom Teruah as a new year, when in fact God commands them in Leviticus to observe it in the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. So how can this be a new year? Well, that's because it was the new year for the Babylonians. Now, from very early on, the Babylonians had a lunar solar calendar eerily similar to the biblical calendar. Remember what I said in earlier podcasts about Satan always having a counterfeit of everything that God has? Well, here it is again. This similarity of the calendars resulted in Yom Teruah consistently falling on the first day of the month of Tishri from the Babylonian calendar, which happened to be the Babylonian New Year Akitu. So naturally, when the Jews adopted the Babylonian month names, they began to refer to it as 
Rosh Hashanah, which in Hebrew translates the first of the year. And then they go on to reference it as the first day of their agricultural calendar, since in reality it was the seventh month of the religious calendar commanded by God. Are you confused yet? But what's unfortunate is that the name Rosh Hashanah goes on to drown out and become more widely recognized than the holy day commanded by God, which is Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, the seventh month of the year, not the new year. In the same way that Easter goes on to drown out Passover for Christians. In fact, Tammuz was the son of the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, where we derive the English translation Easter. But we'll discuss that next spring. So now that you can see the pagan Babylonian influence of Rosh Hashanah, let's talk about the biblical appointment given by God for us to observe instead, which is Yom Teruah. And this is going to blow your mind. So Yom Teruah is the only holy day commanded by God that is celebrated on the first of the month, meaning that it begins with a new moon. Now these days we have science to tell us the cycles of the moon, but back in the day their agricultural calendar revolved around the very first new moon to set the date and kick off their agricultural calendar. And that made it vitally important to get this first moon of the first day of their calendar correct. And for this reason, the date was only set based on the sighting of the new moon by two witnesses. The priests would keep watch, sometimes for days, for the slivers of a new moon. It became known as the feast where no one knew the day or the hour when it would begin. Sound familiar? So when Christ says no man knows the day or the hour in Matthew 24, he's subliminally pointing to Yom Teruah. It's the only feast where they were at the mercy of the signs of the moon in order to set the date. Now back in those days, there wasn't a running calendar that could easily be bought in local stores. The announcement of this new moon had to be carried by messengers who would travel from Jerusalem, shouting it and blowing the shofar for people to mark the date. So the further away from Jerusalem that you lived, the later in the day or night that the messenger would arrive. And this may shed some light on the parable that Jesus gave of the ten virgins, five of which were waiting with lamps in hand for the messenger who was coming to announce the bridegroom's arrival, which is the epitome of what Yom Teruah represents for us as Christians, Christ's return. Yom Teruah is literally known as the day of the blowing of trumpets, and numerous references throughout scripture correlate Christ's return with trumpets. The book of Matthew says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. 1 Corinthians says, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now on Yom Teruah, the shofar is blown exactly 100 times, and the 100th blast is known as the last trump. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Yet another subliminal message in scripture pointing to the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, in connection to the return of Christ. 
Now, there's a whole slew of scriptures throughout Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, the book of Revelation, and even Jesus himself who describes the turmoil that will be happening when he returns for us. And they all describe trouble and distress, darkness, gloominess, a woman in travail going through the final stages of childbirth, men's hearts failing them for fear of what's coming on the earth. And Daniel even references it as the time of Jacob's trouble. In Zephaniah chapter 1, God says that he's going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth and destroy all mankind from the face of the earth. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests and those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also those who swear by Moloch. He goes on to say that on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung because they sinned against him. And in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make sudden end of all who live on earth on that day. Now, it's interesting that he's saying his return and all of this destruction will happen in a single day. In the future, I'm going to share a study of the book of Revelation, which also continually mentions the day of the Lord and how this day of Christ's return also corresponds with the day that God's wrath is poured out. Not over an extended period of time, but that everything happens within a single day. Therefore, it's believed that the day Christ returns and raptures his church will be the same day that God pours out his wrath on those left behind. And this brings us to yet another name assigned by the Jews to Yom Teruah. It's known in the Torah as Yom Hakaseh, meaning the day of hiding, which is exactly what we're told that the kings of earth will be doing when Christ returns. But it's also believed that the children of God will be hidden from his wrath, referencing our rapture. And in the book of Revelation, we see exactly that. Do you remember earlier in the podcast when I played that audio clip of the gentleman talking about how God speaks to his people, to the nations, uh, through the signs and the sun, moon, and stars? Well, when the sixth seal is opened in the book of Revelation, there was a great earthquake. The sun goes black, the moon turns blood red, and the stars of heaven fall to earth. It's said that the kings of earth hide themselves in caves and bunkers in the mountain, and they proclaim that the great day of God's wrath has arrived. But what's even more interesting is that the same description of the sun going black, the moon turning to blood, and the stars falling from heaven are also mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what immediately follows these signs in the heavens is Christ's return in the clouds. And in the book of Revelation, after these same events happen, a great multitude suddenly appears in heaven, and they are recognized by one of the elders surrounding the throne as coming out of the great tribulation, connecting the day of Christ's return to the day of the rapture of the saints, and also the day that God's wrath is poured out on earth. Now, in Numbers chapter 10, God tells the Israelites, if you go to war in your land against an enemy that oppresses you, blow an alarm with trumpets and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. 
So the trumpets blown on Yom Teruah not only represent Christ's return in the clouds, it also symbolizes a dire emergency call in which God hears and comes to our rescue. For us as Christians, the trumpet sounding is symbolic of Christ returning as our saving grace. And the oppressive enemy who warrants such an alarm will be the Antichrist who will be at war with the saints. For us, the sounding of these trumpets on Yom Teruah will trigger our salvation quite literally. And here's the final amazing connection of Christ's return to Yom Teruah. The kings of Israel and Judah were typically enthroned throughout history on Yom Teruah. Every Sabbath, the Jews eat challah bread. It's usually a long braided loaf, but on the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, they shape it into a round loaf which resembles a crown. And this tradition has been observed for thousands of years because they believe that this will be the holy day where the Messiah will be crowned King of Kings. Now, there were four parts to the enthronement of a Jewish king. The first part was the giving of the decree, and this decree is found in Psalms chapter 2, given by God himself. Next up is the giving of the scepter. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that the scepter of justice will be the scepter of God's kingdom, and we're told in Luke that God will make sure that we get justice when he returns. Next was the taking of the throne and the acclamation, like God saved the king. In 2 Samuel, David is anointed king over Israel. And in 1 Kings, Solomon is anointed king over Israel. And here we see the trumpet is blown and all of the people say the acclamation, Long live King Solomon. The same acclamation is described in Revelations chapter 5, when the 24 elders and the four beasts surrounding the throne say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. They end up throwing their crowns before his throne, and this is traditionally the final part of the enthronement ceremony, when the subjects come to pledge their allegiance to the new king. In Revelations chapter 19, John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and on his robe and thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the next true enthronement of a Jewish king will be on the day when Christ returns. And lucky for us, we'll have a front row seat for the ceremony. So we've covered a lot of information this week, and I hope that the main takeaway that you got from it is that these feasts of the Lord were divine appointments set by God himself for the specific purpose of his people being in the right place at the right time for his return. Now, the Jews may have missed the memo with his first coming, but we know that these divine appointments not only prophesy the date of Christ's return, the date of our rapture, but also the date that he is enthroned as king and enacts justice for his people by pouring out his wrath on those who are left behind. Now, no one knows the year when this will happen, but we do know the feasts and the season. So next week, we're going to talk about the 10 days of repentance that Yom Teruah kicks off, and it concludes with judgment on Yom Kippur, the second fall feast given by God, and it's going to be equally as prophetic. As always, if you've enjoyed today's content, please hit the subscribe button, rate today's episode, and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.